This is Dr. Rob Harder with the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, making your world better. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? What are the biggest challenges? What are the biggest obstacles? How should nonprofits fundraise in an economy that is constantly changing? All of these reasons combined led me to start this show. And it's my hope that through this series, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear from effective leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy the show as together we hear how they are making their world better. Well, everyone has heard of the YMCA thanks to the Village People's infamous song, right? But did you know this, that the Y, with all of its nationwide affiliates, is actually one of the largest nonprofits in not only the U.S., but in the world. My guest today is the current but retiring president and CEO of the YMCA of the USA, Kevin Washington. After 43 years of service, Kevin is handing off the baton to the next leader to take this organization into the future. And along the way uh, in our interview, Kevin shares all kinds of fascinating insights and stories that he's learned over the years of experience of leadership in the nonprofit world. And when I asked him, what is giving him hope today? I think you'll be equally inspired by his answer. Enjoy today's show. Well, it's so good to have you on the show, Kevin. And I know it's a little bit bittersweet because you're in the process of retiring, but I thought before you go, I hope to be one of the many interviews that you'll have to really pass on your wisdom and your leadership. But again, thanks for being on the show today. Appreciate you having me, Rob. Looking forward to the conversation. Absolutely. Well, you announced your retirement at the Y at the end of 2021, and this is after 43 years of service to the organization. You've done a lot of different things and had a lot of different roles throughout the YMCA at different cities. Maybe to start a little bit by giving a quick history of your history with the organization and maybe some of those highlights that you've experienced along the way. Okay. Thank you, Rob. Really appreciate the opportunity to be in, as I said earlier. I'll talk a little bit about my history with the Y. As I start talking about the Y, I said the Y found me at the William S. Pierce School in 24th and Christian Streets at the age of 10 in a program called the Gray Y, which was an acronym for grade school at the Y. It was a youth director, his name was Bill Morton, who organized a group of young men, boys, to come together to really talk about leadership opportunities, fellowship, and we would go to the YMCA, which is at 1724 Christian Street, to play, to learn swimming. We'd go to day camp there, all kinds of sports. So that was my introduction into the YMCA. And from that particular point, I got hooked. Uh, I was at the Y just about every day. My mother knew exactly where I was. And I also learned volunteer service there. You know, one of the stories I tell is I was, I think I was 13, 13 12 or 13, and I wasn't old enough to play in what they had. They had a church league on Friday nights and my brother played. And I would keep the score. So I would keep score for the game just to be there at the time, uh, clean up the gym afterwards. Uh, and, and that was my really introduction into understanding the, that volunteer service and giving back to your to the community. And from there, I began to play basketball at the Y. got pretty good and went on to Temple University. And as I was working in a settlement one day, I was coming home and I saw Mr. Morton who was then, at that point, was the executive director of that YMCA that I grew up in. He stopped me and he said, Kevin, come see me Monday. I said, yes, sir, Mr. Morton. I always called him Mr. Morton until the day he died. And he called me and I went to see him on Monday. And he said, Kevin, I got a job for you. I want you to be the youth director at the Christian Street YMCA. Uh, 
no way in the world I was going to turn it down because it was, for me, it was a great opportunity to do work at a youth, at an organization that I love that helped shape me and also gave me the opportunity to give back in the community that I grew up in. So I couldn't resist it. And that was September 24th, 1978, I started. Wow, 1978. Okay, so you were drawn into it, had a personal experience, and then all of a sudden you had this opportunity, in a sense at the time probably, to work at a dream job for you. It was a dream job. Paid me $10,000 a year. (laughs) I remember the salary. Wow, that's amazing, isn't it, how things have changed? Yes, 10 grand. And I loved every minute of it. You know, I worked 60, 80 hours a week because I enjoyed doing that work with young people. From there, I moved up north to a, a job at the Columbia North YMCA, became executive director of that, which is still in Philadelphia. And I worked there in 1992. And from 92, I moved to Chicago. And I would say I took a job at Chicago in a YMCA that was just built, 12,000 square foot, beautiful facility on the south side of Chicago. And it was there that I truly understood how impactful a YMCA could be. Because I went from that job to being the vice president of operations for the YMCA Metropolitan Chicago. And I understood the impact the YMCA could have in community from a programmatic perspective. We did foster care. We did pre-pregnancy uh, work. We did street intervention work. We did job training. So we did a lot of work in communities that helped them transform and to help people transform. And it was at that place that I really understood how valuable a YMCA could be in community. And I moved from there to the CEO of the YMCA Metropolitan Hartford. Did that for 10 years. Moved there to Boston. I was in Boston for five and a half years. And then I took this job at the YMCA USA in 2015. So it's been a whirlwind of those 43 years. I'm impressed. No, and you know, for my listeners, I think everybody is sort of the why, of course, but perhaps they don't know the details. Just for a quick overview summary of the national organization, how big is it? How many staff do you have? What kind of budget do you have? That may be interesting for my listeners. The YMCA of the USA is the national resource office for the YMCA of America. In our organization, we are a federated organization and That means that those organizations that fly the umbrella adhere to rules and and, and qualifications to be able to do that, which we manage and control. We own and control the brand. Our organization, we have 800 federated associations that are part of our national network. We have 2,700 location branches, physical location branches across the country. We're in all 50 states, of course. We're in 10,000 communities, meaning we have programs and services in 10,000 communities across this country. We have 22 million members. We are the largest not-for-profit federated organization in the country by service numbers and what we do. And our, the operating budget for the YMCA of the USA itself is 70 million. The operating budget for all of our WAS collectively is in 2019, in 2019, it was 8.4 billion. In 20, in 2020, that number went down to about 5.3 billion. That just showed you the devastation that COVID had, but as an organization, 8.4 billion, the largest not-for-profit in the country and probably one of the largest in the world, why even say the USA. No, that's super impressive. I'm glad you mentioned that because that would be my guess that it was very large. I had no idea it was that big. I mean, that is huge. Like I say, the largest yeah, nonprofit essentially in the United States, if not the world. Well, you did talk about COVID and interestingly, how much of an impact, I mean, you saw it directly. And maybe we can go into that a bit because I've had so many people on my show and of course, 
It's very important and, and always front of mind to talk about COVID, how you've responded, how your organization has responded, because it impacted all of us, but particularly the nonprofit sector, I feel like. And so I understand that you really were became a, a strong advocate and vocal leader, and not just you know your area, but nationally because of the COVID pandemic. Talk about the organizational changes you made to enable the Y to quickly adapt to the onset of the pandemic in order to meet the new and evolving community needs that you were facing? Thank you for the question, Rob. As you probably, as you just said, COVID-19 was a huge, huge devastating to the nonprofit community. For the why, it really helped us pivot. And we talk about becoming a vital community asset. And how do we do that? Well, when it, when it, when it first happened, first of all, we recognized early on that it was going to be devastating to our organization. And I, we did something at the national level that we probably never done and hopefully will never have to do. We really moved forward. We closed our operation March 11th at national. And we sent out a notice to our YMCA 800 affiliates. And we said, we didn't ask, we recommended strongly that they close their doors. Now I will tell you, Rob, if you had a Twitter file or text messages, the, the ones that we received, let's just say they were not on the, on the, on the pleasant side. Because we rarely would mandate something like we don't we don't have the power to mandate. But in this case, we were really being strongly from a recommendation standpoint. And I don't think people we grasped at the national level really soon how quickly this pandemic could hurt the organization. And so that's why we did that. But what we also did and what we were able to do, we did a couple of things. The first thing was we talked about safety at a high level all the time. Secondarily. We manifested all of our relationships with our philanthropic efforts to help us give money that was unrestricted because we knew that would be a big issue for us. The third, the, the, sec, the other call that I made was to Neil Denton, who was our senior vice president for government relations. And what I said to him was, Neil, there's no way that the organization can get through this without significant help from the government because we can't do it alone, because I saw what it was going to do in terms of our organization. And what happened at that point, as you may be aware, is something that hopefully will stay intact. All nonprofits, the government relations people, the marketing communications people formed a coalition to work collaboratively together. That was important. And for us on the ground, what it allowed us to do was say, in these communities, these are the things that were important. One, we had 1,300 sites delivering food in communities. Why? Uh, in many instances, we served meals to kids because of summer camp and after school program. But because schools were closed, that link to the opportunity to have food was destroyed. We filled that gap in over 1,300 communities, too. We also did, food, did the sheltering, working with not, local organizations to be able to support their efforts in the pandemic response, doing, doing places for people to sleep, to change clothes, all of those kinds of things. And we also set up child care sites for those first responders who we knew had to be on the front line, but needed a safe and reliable place for their kids for child care. All of those things we were doing because we recognized as an organization that was in community, we had to be prepared and we pivoted to respond to those issues, to ensure that those folks who needed childcare, who needed food, who needed seniors, who needed support, we were there to do that. And in conjunction with other organizations, 
But that's the pivot that we've made in that particular response to the pandemic. And the national organization was working constantly to ensure that our, our, our folks on the ground had the material, had the knowledge that they needed to respond to those particular issues. So it was a um, full-fledged effort, but I also think that it really positioned the wise an organization in communities that could be reliable. The work with the government was important because as a collective, because what we talked about was we're needed now in a much make in a major way as this pandemic progresses, we're going to be needed beyond that to repair what's left of our society. And that was one of the things that helped us as a group, as an entity, to get the resources we needed as a as a nonprofit organization. We'll be right back. Hey, friends. Thanks so much for listening to the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast. If this is your first time listening to us, I want to make sure you're aware of a whole group of other episodes with fascinating guests that I previously interviewed. Just go to our website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. There you'll find numerous interviews of nonprofit leaders from all over the country and even from different countries, all trying to make their world better. I also want to encourage you to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with others. This will help us get this great content out to more nonprofit leaders just like you. Now, finally, if you want to get my monthly email update that contains more resources in addition to these episodes, it's really easy. Just go to my website at nonprofitleadershippodcast.org and simply type your email address in the top right-hand box, and you'll be added to our monthly email update. And this way, you'll never miss any of the interviews or extra content from this show. If you have any questions or comments, do not hesitate to email me. Thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. Well, I'm really impressed with all that you did. And as you described that, I think for my listeners, you know, having those coalitions, particularly now, but I think it's always been important, of course, but I think after COVID, I think you're right. I think there was this renewed commitment a really kind of a relentless commitment to say, let's work together across sectors, the government sector, the for-profit sector, the nonprofit sector. So talk a bit more about that, I think is an almost instructional way for my listeners. How did you go about it? What were the key leaders that you chose? And what were some of the barriers that you had to overcome in order to form that coalition? Very good point. First of all, we came together because of the need and the, and the emergency need of that group to come together. We had all our public relations people, all our communications people, all our government, they were on phone calls every morning at 7.30 to be able to talk about what they needed. As you know, there were turf issues, and I'll talk a little bit about that. But what they did first and foremost was said, how do we make sure that we're positioning us collectively to get our message out? And I, uh, first of all, I think Brian, Brian, Brian who was uh, the CEO of United Way at the time, played a lead role. I played the lead role and few others played the lead role in being the voice, not just for the why or for the United Way, but for the, for the consortium of folks who were working collaboratively. And I will tell you, Rob, I've done, I did so many news cycles and newspapers and editorials and on TV. Uh, folks were saying, well, Kevin, are you working? Are you going to try? Are you trying out to be a, uh, a commentator? So, so I said, we're just trying to get our message. And the message was a couple of things. One, the nonprofit communities is essential to recovery. Too, and it's essential not only for recovery, but when the, when this pandemic is over, they need to be there to continue to heal community. Three, we got together to be able to uh, talk to the legislators, 
the nonprofit community had never benefited from substantial emergency relief funds. This was the first time in the history of that this process has been going that the nonprofit was able to benefit, you know, in the PPP loans and things that we had never benefited before. So our ability to make our case was key in this particular process. It was all of us. But what was interesting, as you probably know, Rob, is in a, in a, in a world where partisanship reigns, the nonprofits could get in every door. And like the wild, we're in 50 states, we can get in every door. So whatever you're, whether it was red, purple, blue, whatever shape you were in, whatever color you possessed, we were able to get in that door. And we had, all of us had great relationships. And I will tell you, the um, congressional response that we received was extremely positive. And so we had so many people benefit from the PPP loans, the, the income tax credit loans, the, uh, the, un the unemployment reimbursement. Uh, processes. So that was really, that really saved in many instances the nonprofit community. Otherwise, we would have been in very deep trouble. And as you know, and I don't think many people know this, a nonprofit community is the third largest employer in the country. So that's, those kinds of statistics. Um, yeah, that's a big deal. That is a really Those kinds of statistics helped us make our case. And people really, and they also understood that if there wasn't substantial childcare in the communities, we could never recover as an entity. So those are the kinds of things that help us make our case as we move down this path, Rob. It was very important and it was very, you know, we look at it now and my hope is as I can, as I move forward in my career, that this never stops, that we've learned the lesson as an entity, that our ability to collaborate and work together gives us a level of power and influence that is, that is what the uh, for-profit community has been doing for so long. So we learned that, and it really was helpful to, our, to all of us as we went through this process. Well, it seems like no doubt about it. You made a huge impact and, and really advocated well for the nonprofit sector as a whole, and then specifically for the why, of course. And you mentioned something earlier that I think is important. I've talked to some leaders on my show during this COVID pandemic response time. And it has been very interesting because it's a little bit of a shift to giving. Like I think before COVID, certainly people gave unrestricted gifts, particularly to a nonprofit that they really liked and they're very committed to. However, it was pretty clear that there's still for some they had very specific things they would like to give to a nonprofit. And so they would add restrictions to it. So they'd give you a nice gift, but they say, I want this to go to this particular program or that particular program and not just to the general organization. So how did you kind of sell that to your donors that, hey, we just need unrestricted gifts at this point because there's so many needs coming at us. We don't know exactly where to put this money yet, but would you trust us with this money and give us an unrestricted gift because guarantee we'll put it into good practice. We'll serve the needs of this community. But right now we don't know what those are. How did you make that pitch? Well, first, a great question. First, we started with those folks who were very close to us. We've had significant relationship with a couple, some several donors who have faith in our organization. And we went to them first and foremost and said to them, listen, we have some YMCA's that are in trouble. And it's all about economic survival now. While I know the programs and services that you want to deliver are important to you, what's most important to all of us right now is survival of our institution. And we need unrestricted funds for that purpose because I can't tell you what the Y in Detroit may need or what the Y in California and in Berkeley may need. But what I can tell you is that they're talking, they're in a situation where they need the most freedom possible to allocate those resources where they need to go. And, I, and it was because of long-term relationships 
and the donors we've had in those with us for a while who had faith and confidence in our ability to deliver, they were very receptive to that idea and recognized the significant issues that we have. We have a, a great relationship with the Mac P Foundation out of Minneapolis, who had been who we're a trustee of, of, of some of the resources they give. And I had a conversation with the CEO, Paul Bush, and he and I have had very open and honest dialogue all along the way. And when I talked to him about where we were and what we were doing, he would say, Kevin, we'll do all that we can to support these efforts. And his group made those restrictions, those don donations they give us unrestricted. And that was significant for us. The most challenging part of that, I will tell you, Rob, was how do we use what we have to give to a network of 800 YMCAs? You know, because I didn't have enough to give one wire enough to, so I had to make some very tough choices about where those resources would go. But I will tell you, the donors, it's particularly Mac P Foundation, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, they, we've had been working with them for quite a while. And so they were open to the ideas of us being able to do some things based on the knowledge and understanding that they have about organization. Now, that's really interesting. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I think it's been an interesting shift again with a lot of donors. They're getting that now. They're understanding it. And you said the key word, I think, that when people trust an organization, then it should follow that when they give to the organization, they trust that, hey, the organization knows best where to put this money. Here's my gift. I give it to you. Report back, of course. Let us know what you used it for. But I'm going to give you the trust that you will apply it where needed most. So very interesting. And the other side to that too, Rob, is to be able to say, this is not working well. And we're fought with, and I think that's where the trust develops because you can be honest and transparent about where you're having success and where you're having failure. Uh, transparency is so critical, isn't it? To building that trust for sure. Well, as I mentioned in the outset, you know, sadly for all your, the people that work with you and the impact you've had, you are retiring. So I thought maybe this may be an odd question perhaps, but I, I thought I'd ask it. You know, you've been a part of the Y for a long time. If you were to wave your magic wand and you were to be able to select your successor, what kind of leader are you looking for to take the Y to the next level? Wow, Rob. Uh -huh. Can he or she walk on water? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I do think that one, as you, as you, as you do this work, you recognize that first of all, you, there's a level of humbleness you have to bring to the, to the job. And you have to be willing to listen to everyone, a level of empathy that you need to bring to this work. And also there's, there has to be a level of innovation. And I would say boldness, boldness. In our, in, our, in our current environment, that's just the why, but I think in all of our, in, in the nonprofit environment, we have to not be satisfied with status quo and we'll be willing to risk not to be able to move the organization forward. So I would look for a leader that bring those things. Absolutely a level of humbleness, absolute level of listening, empathy, innovation, and boldness that's really going to be able to say, hey, this is what we need to do. And clearly for me, Rob, as I've demonstrated throughout the work that I've done, the work that we're doing in uh, diversity, inclusion, and equity stands up as what we need to continue to do. And that's where I see uh, the organization continuing to be bold at how they approach that. Because I believe that the why, because of how it's positioned in so many communities across this country, can be a leader in helping us change some of the issues that we feel that our country is dealing with. We can be a, a valuable asset in helping that transformation happen. So I do think that that's part of what I would look for for the new leader. 
Yeah, no pressure at all. So if you're listening and you want to apply for the position, don't, yeah, just make sure you can walk on water and you're fine. You'll, you'll get the job. But no, I love what you said about that. And certainly with the Y having such a large footprint because it's such a large organization with all of your affiliates. Now, kind of broadly speaking for the Y organization, you've already kind of mentioned a few things, but as you look into the future, what do you anticipate as some of the greatest opportunities? You already mentioned the racial equity and diversity piece of that, which I'm sure is a big opportunity to really again lead the nation in that. But other opportunities besides that, and what are the biggest challenges that will be facing the next uh, CEO of the Y? Good question. Good question. Opportunities. One, I think our position around youth development is critical and continuing to be a leader in that role. Uh, young people today uh, face so many challenges that I didn't face, probably you didn't face growing up. And I think organizations like the Y and others that are focused on youth development need to be conscious of that, particularly as they deal with some of the mental health challenges they focus on. So our work in youth development is a core to us and continues to be that core as we move forward. And we will never give up on that. Two, I think we don't, we don't talk about fitness. We talk about preventive health or wellness as an entity. So I see the work that we can continue to do around wellness and community health as an important aspect. Uh, I think there's an, a pathway where the Y can partner with, and we're doing some of that, but I think we have a much broader opportunity with health providers, with insurance companies to be able to be that community arm deliverer of services that's a preventive and a wellness for communities. I think there's a lot of opportunity there We've done some of that work in the work we've done with the diabetes and work and some of the work we've done in blood pressure management work. But there's a lot more to do because there's so many individuals who are suffer from those diseases and chronic disease, which we know is all about lifestyle. It's all about lifestyle. And I think the why in this position and where it's located can be a substantial help support in changing that dynamic, particularly in what I would call from an equity and access perspective. So I think we have a role to play in that. And then the, the other one I would say is creating a much more engaged civic society. Those things have broken up. You know, you've read Putnam's Bowling Alone and some of the other things that he's written. Those institutions that help create a much more engaging and civic society where neighbors really care about neighbors and are working collaboratively together. I think the Y has a role that they can play in that as well. Biggest challenges, and I hope too many of my folks don't listen to this, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> I do think that as an organization, we have to figure out a way to consolidate. And I don't mean moving from a federated organization, because I don't think that that is the, at the strength of the core of the organization. The federated organization allows those YMCAs to respond to the needs and issues of their local community. And I think that is key to our organization. It should never stop. But we have 800. And they vary in size. And I can give you, I mean, so our largest is probably pre-COVID was 250 million to our smallest, maybe 200 or 300,000. And the needs and the ability to do so much of the work that has to happen in an organization is very difficult. I'm not saying they don't have the intellect, but they don't have the capacity to do some of the things necessary to be an effective organization. What I believe needs to happen is I think we can consolidate without giving up the local community strength piece. I know that can happen. I think that's going to be the biggest challenge for our organization, the next leader of our organization, how, how he or she approaches that 
because it has to happen. And I don't think it can happen from the top down. National can't say this. It has to be created and comes from the bottoms up. We can incentivize it, but it has to come from the bottoms up. And I do think that has to happen because we're spending way too much money on administrative costs, IT, finance, and replicating things that can be done differently in a collaborative nature. So that's what I think is the biggest challenge. It's fascinating you mentioned that, you know, I've had multiple guests just recently, last couple of months, that I keep hearing that recurring theme of consolidation. It's really interesting that, you know, across the board, I think these are some real tough questions that nonprofits are asking themselves. Do we have too many nonprofits? Can we consolidate? Can there be some efficiencies gained if we can come together and, like you said, combine some tech roles or combine some resources where we actually are more effective and we utilize people's money, donors' money, more effectively? So I think it's really interesting you mentioned that because I've heard that from many other leaders. And Grab, as you know, as a nonprofit leader yourself, that's one of the things that we haven't done as an entity. We've not taken on what automobiles have done, retail industry has done. We have not done that. We've always felt that, no, we do something this way and we have to continue. We have to do it separately from you. There are too many common things that we have. Youth development, social emotional learning, and there are experts in that who we can combine together and serve in a much more higher, effective way and reduce some of the costs in the organization. But pride, ownership, all of those kinds of things arrogance, <laughs> they all get in the way of us uh, doing that. But nonprofit industry has to consolidate. I love No, you're right on. I mean, we're human, aren't we? Yeah. Even the nonprofit sector, we're still human. Okay. So one last question. You have had a lot of experience and you are transitioning out of your role, but I'm sure you'll continue to serve and do other things outside of your role. But what gives you hope today? And the reason I ask that is because I think for a lot of people, COVID has been very difficult for all of us. But in particular, I think when you're in leadership and nonprofit leadership and you've been struggling just to survive and to get through a very difficult year last year, and it's continued to be difficult this year, as you look around, what is giving you hope today? Wow. That's an easy answer for me, Robert. I'll tell you why. When I think about the the summer of George Floyd, that's what I'll call it, the summer of George Floyd, the summer of awakening, I think, for many folks. I think people knew in their in their heads that these things were happening, but they saw it from their heart. They saw it, they saw it and it touched an emotional in them. Mentally and, and intellectually, they knew that there was police brutality across this country. But when they saw it live in living color, it touched an emotional strain in their heart. And that really was the reaction we saw from an emotional perspective. When that happened, I wrote a piece uh, about what my, what my reflection. I'm an older guy, as you know, Ron. Um, born in 54. So I experienced the civil rights movement as a young boy. I was 14 when the stuff happened in 67 and 68, when Martin Luther King was killed, when the summer of 67, the riots in Newark, the riots in Detroit, what happened in Philadelphia, I saw them and visualized them firsthand from my own perspective. But, and it was mostly Black people marching during that time. We got some allies later on. I think that the whole Jewish population was very supportive of the civil rights movement early but what I saw this summer and what I continue to see now, which gives me hope, is a rainbow coalition led mostly by young people who have been, I would say, reared differently about race relations, 
about gender equity, and they have a different perspective. They give me hope. I am a youth director at heart. I tell everybody I'm a youth director, even in this job, I just get paid a little bit more money to do this work. But I am hopeful because of the young people who I call change makers, who are out there believing that we can be better. And there is no color to them. They're all colors, all shapes, and all perspectives coming together to say, as a country, we can be better. And that's what gives me hope. And I wrote that. I, I said I was, when I looked at the George Floyd stuff, I said I was angry because those are the emotions of a, me as a black man. I was angry, but I was hopeful. I was hopeful because of what I saw in the streets across this country and what I continue to see. That's what makes me hopeful. Wow, that's powerful. Thank you. Uh, that just rolled right off your tongue. So that tells me it's part of your heart, you know, truly. And I share that hope with you. Well, this has been fascinating. And I have a feeling my listeners are going to want to learn a little bit more about you, certainly learn more about the why. Where would you send them online so they can either connect with you or just find out a little bit more about you and the why? They can connect with me at kwashington at ymca.net. And they also can learn a lot about our organization at ymca.net, soon to be ymca.org, <laughs> because we finally captured that. But ymca.net will give them a lot of information about the organization, where we are, what we're doing, and also help them understand what's happening in their local communities, and they can be a part of the organization. Well, Kevin, this has been a fascinating uh, conversation. Again, congratulations to a lifetime of service. Uh, well-deserved, all the kudos you're going to be getting from now uh, till probably till you actually officially leave. So thank you for what you've done, what you continue to do, and for inspiring my guests today with your words and with your insights. Rob, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Hey, friends, I wanted you to know that this podcast can be found on both iTunes and Spotify. If you're wondering how to find it, just type in the words Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, and this podcast should show up. We also encourage you, when you go on iTunes, let us know what you think. Give us a review. Give us a rating. We would love to hear what you think of this podcast, and your feedback will help expand this podcast to get it out to as many people as possible. You can also find other resources and interviews of past guests on my website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Again, that website is non nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, keep making your world better.